Greetings to all of you. It's a privilege to be here with you on a very beautiful, crisp uh, Sabbath day. Appreciated the special music. Somebody could say I'm partial. <laughs> but it's good to be here. It's good to see the Ames back. They were down in Florida last weekend. Had a very positive uh, two Tomorrow's World lectures down there. <clears throat> Over 140 people in each place. That sounds very exciting. Had over a 5% response to the invitations that were sent out, which is very good. I had a very positive visit with congregations in Brazelton and Atlanta, Georgia. The Brazelton Church started about a year ago, I think, and it's around 35 to 40 people. The Atlanta Church is pushing 80 to 100. Well, it was very exciting to be there and to be with the brethren down there. I had a little story I wanted to share with you as we begin the sermon this afternoon. <clears throat> you may scratch your head at first to wonder what this has to do with the sermon, but it will tie in. These four golfers had just completed a game of golf. They went into the locker room and started to talk, <clears throat> and a cell phone rang. And one of the guys picked up the cell phone and pressed the uh, speaker button. And it was a voice came over the cell phone and said, Hi, honey, are you at the club? And the fellow said, yeah, I'm at the club. How was the golf game? It was great. It was great. And then the voice said, well, I'm at the mall. And that leather coat that uh, we've been talking about is on sale. It's only $1,900. Can I get it, please? And the guy said, well, if you like it, go ahead and get it. And she said, um, the other thing I did, I went by the Lexus dealer, the car dealer. And that car that we've been looking at, it's on sale, too, and it's only 90000 <laughs> Could we think about getting that? And the guy said, well, you know, if you like it, go ahead, but make sure you get plenty of extras on it. There's one more thing, honey. The real estate person called. You know that house that we were looking at? The one up on the hill with the trees around it overlooking the lake that had four garages, and it had a barn that, you know, could hold the horses that you've always wanted. It's 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 come down. It's back on the market, and it's only it's it's under a million. It's only nine hundred fifty thousand. He said, "Well, let's think about this for a minute. Offer them nine hundred thousand, and if they take it, then we'll go ahead and get it." And the voice said, "Thanks, honey. See you later. Bye." And the guy kind of looked up, and he saw his friend standing there, just. <laughs> their mouth was open because they heard this conversation where these two people agreed to spend over a million dollars in, in about two or three minutes. And then the guy looked at his, his friends and then he got a sheepish grin on his face and he says, anybody know whose phone this is? You know, this is an item that's been going around on the Internet <clears throat> as a joke. But, you know, it says something about our society. Because when you think about the conversation, <clears throat> this conversation was focused on the here and the now, on physical things, on acquiring more and more things, bigger and better things, to enjoy the good life by themselves. And the woman thought nothing about suggesting spending all this money. And the husband didn't 
or the, the man didn't guide the conversation in any other direction. It was so that they could enjoy all these things by themselves. It also has another little story that the man that answered the phone wasn't the husband. And he misrepresented himself and he lied and then just shoved it off as no big deal. It's just just a joke. This says quite a bit about our society today because people live that way today. There was a lack of concern, you might say, for the rest of the world. They were focused on themselves, focused on themselves. If the focus had been different, it probably wouldn't have been funny and it wouldn't be circulating over the Internet. But if the conversation had gone something like this, honey, you know that I saw that coat again at the mall. And even though it's on sale for only $1,900, you know, the lady down the street that needs a new roof on her house, you know, maybe we could help her out and I could pass up the coat. Whenever they started talking about a $90,000 car, the conversation could have said, you know, there's some people at church. The guy lost his job. The woman's trying to work to keep the family together. They need a car. Maybe we could help them out with some of that money we were going to spend on a car for us. And then maybe we could use the rest of the money, maybe send it to Haiti to help buy some emergency supplies for people that are still living in tents and whatever else a year later. And, you know, the million dollars that we were thinking about spending on us, maybe we could donate to that church that we came across that was preaching the gospel in a very powerful way and changing people's lives. That's not very funny. It's very different from the way the world looks at things. You know, the Apostle Paul made a statement in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18. You don't need to turn there, but jot it down. He talks about a group of people that God is calling out of this world. He says, come out of this world. Be different. Be different. And I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters. I want you to become part of my family, to think differently, not the way the world thinks. The Bible calls these people Christians. The Bible calls these people Christians. And it's the intent of Scripture that God wants us to be different. I want to talk about a subject today that can help us develop a very different perspective from the perspective of this world and what was illustrated in that little story. This will help us develop a godly perspective that we have got to develop if we hope to be in the coming kingdom of God, to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth and to literally change the way things are done on this earth. Dr. Meredith has called a fast, a church-wide fast for today. 
As you heard in the opening letter that Mr. Lee wrote, that Satan is attacking his people. He's also attacking the nations that God has chosen and blessed and given a mission to be lights to this world. And Satan is out to destroy and divide. We are fasting today to show our concern for thousands of people that are affected by the turmoil that has shaken the churches of God literally for the last 10, 15 years or more. And we've been instructed to ask God to protect his people, to guide his people, to keep them from becoming bitter and disillusioned. Yeah, when congregations break apart, people are hurt. People are frustrated. And they're disillusioned when they see ministers and leaders that they look to going in different directions and not talking to each other. or saying, well, good riddance to you or I couldn't stand you. This is very disillusioning to people. <clears throat> we want to ask God to protect his people, to guide them, keep them from getting bitter, keep them from leaving the truth. Because some people say, I've had it with that, and I'm gone. I'm out of here. This can't be God's way of life. This can't be God's church. We also want to ask God to bring his people together in greater unity so that we can be led by Jesus Christ. I'd like to ask a few more clarifying questions as we get into the sermon. Because I want to make this personal to you. Because if we're just fasting for other people, well, it's, it's for them. But hopefully we will be different at the end of the fast today. We've been asked to show our concern for those that are being affected by these ups and downs and trials and tribulations. But think about it. Who are you showing concern to? Are you showing concern to other people so they will see us fasting for them? Or are we showing concern to God? Are we showing concern to God that we care for his people? Is there anything God is going to look for in us as we fast? He's going to be looking for things in us. When we ask God to bring his people together, is there anything that he asks us to do and looks for us to do? So we've got to have a personal stake in this. When we pray for unity, are there any instructions that God gives us about unity? Are we doing anything that might be disruptive of unity or chasing people away? See, we've got to look at ourselves as we go through these things. I've entitled the sermon Lessons from Fasting. Lessons from Fasting. We're not just doing something for the sake of doing it. Hopefully we can learn from this experience as we strive to draw closer to God. When I ask some questions, what can we learn from some of these biblical examples that will be helpful for us today? That we can come out of this day different. So that God can use us as powerful instruments in his hands as we learn the lessons that God wants us to learn. 
I realize that <clears throat> we may have a number of new people here that maybe have never fasted before. You know, the first time I told my parents that I was going to fast and keep the Day of Atonement, my mom thought I was going to die. Well, you don't eat, or something's going to happen to you. You know, I grew up in a Protestant church. I never heard any talk about fasting that anybody actually did it. But whenever I told my parents so I was going to do it, it, it created some excitement. Well, you're going to die. You've you got to eat something. Now, there are a lot of different ideas about fasting. I just want to cover a couple of things here quickly so that we understand God's perspective. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church for years, they had a fast day on Friday. They didn't eat meat. They ate fish. And when you look into the history of that, you know, part of it was a decision to help promote business for fishermen. And there were other nations that, that fasted on different days, but they ate fish for the same reasons. That's not what we're talking about. The Muslims fast during Ramadan. They don't eat during the day, but then they eat at night. <laughs> it's a different kind of fast. As I mentioned, some Christians and people that I've grown up around never fasted, never talked about it, and yet the Bible talks about it. Jesus talks about it. You know, Paul mentions 1 Corinthians 7 that a husband and wife should not uh, res uh, abstain from marital relations except for prayer and fasting. You know, Jesus talked about when you fast, take a shower, wash your hair, do this, do that. Don't let on. And yet uh, <clears throat> you can go to different places in the world and you can tell when certain people are fasting, they got ashes all over their face and they're beating on themselves and, and they're letting everybody know that they're fasting. That's not what this is about. You can check the scriptures later, Leviticus 23, verses 27 through 32, talking about the Day of Atonement. It says, afflict your souls, afflict your souls from even to even, this 24-hour period. And this affliction comes from the Hebrew word ana, A-N-A or A-N-A-H, which means to deny yourself something, to weaken yourself. And Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 58.3, he connects fasting with afflicting your soul. That you humble yourself before God. And you do it by denying yourself food. But as, will, as we will see in the sermon, the denying of food is not the real issue here. It, what, it's, what goes not on, it's, what, it's not what goes on in your stomach, but what goes on between your ears that's important. The attitude. So a biblical fast is a period of 24 hours or perhaps longer on occasion when you don't partake of food nor water. You pray and you draw closer to God. And let me just mention here from a physical health standpoint, be careful if you think you want to fast for 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 days. You can damage your body if you're not careful. It appears that Jesus Christ and Moses had some supernatural help to go for 40 days. You know, so be careful. And the same thing goes for tonight when you break a fast. Don't do it as I did one time with three handfuls of peanuts. <laughs> That's not what you do. <laughs> it can create big problems internally. So your body, your stomach shrinks, your intestines shrink. You don't want to put hard food like that down right away, or some of us used to do after the Day of Atonement, go out and have this you know, 12 ounce steak and a couple of baked potatoes and apple pie and a bunch of other things like that. It's best to start with a glass of water. 
and maybe some softer food, peaches or pears or something like that. 24 hours is not that big of a deal. But you've got to be careful because God only gives us one body, and we've got to take care of it. And again, the important thing is not what we're doing to our body, but what goes on in our mind. Why does God want us to fast? Let's talk about that for just a little bit. Why does God want us to fast? What does what, what did some of the biblical personalities do when they fasted? What's the purpose? In essence, fasting is a tool. It's a tool for drawing closer to God. It's to help us grow spiritually, to, to discern his will, as we will see. It's not to show God how much comfort or discomfort we can inflict upon ourselves. I remember talking to a lady one time, and she lived by herself, and she was a little strange. And she said, I wanted to get God's attention, so I took this hot poker and just touched it on my, on my chest. And he said, well, I smelled the flesh burning and so on. I said, why did you do that? Well, to show God I was really serious. Well, you can go to India and places like that, and people stick, you know, big pins through their, head, uh, their faces and through their ears, and in some cases put hooks in their back and hang up like that or try and draw a little cart with these things. This is not what fasting is all about. You know, David mentioned in Psalm 35, verse 13, and David was a man after God's own heart. He said, I humbled myself with prayer and fasting. I humbled myself with prayer and fasting. I wanted to focus on God, focus on his truth, on his word. And he read the scriptures, prayed while he was fasting. He was very earnest, showing God that he was very earnest. And we can follow David's example. In fact, let's go back and just look at that quickly. Psalm 35. Because put the verse in context and notice what David was doing. Because we tend to read the one verse. It says, but as for me, they were, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with prayer and fasting. Okay, we got a definition. But put it in the context of the verses. Start in verse 11. It says, fierce witnesses rise up and they ask me things that I don't know. In other words, they're persecuting me. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. It really upsets me. Now, here's the context. But as for me, when they were sick, when they were ill, whenever they were giving me a bad time, I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my heart. I placed about, or I paced about as though he were my friend and my brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. David was fasting for these people that were giving him a bad time. He probably remembered the promises of God to Abraham, said, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Jesus said, you pray for your enemies. David had a sense of compassion. As we will see, Christ had a sense of compassion where they cared for people. They weren't focused on themselves. They were focused on others. Why do we need to humble ourselves? You know, we could probably give a sermon on that. You know, Solomon mentions in Ecclesiastes, the first couple of verses of the book, he says, all is vanity. All is vanity. Our running after this, running after that, it really doesn't amount to much in the long run. We need to understand that about our lives, about society in general. All this running around and going here and there and doing this and acquiring this, acquiring that, million-dollar houses, whatever. 
can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You can enjoy it now, but that's not what life is all about. You know, Paul mentions in Romans 8.20 how the creation or the creature was made subject to vanity in hope that we would learn some lessons, that there's more to life than just the physical things. Why do we need to humble ourselves? We're talking about that. A lot of the things in the world are vanity, but turn to a couple of scriptures in Isaiah chapter 66. God is looking for qualities in each of us. If we hope to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God, we have got to develop certain qualities. And these are listed quite uh, plainly in the scriptures. In verse 2 of Isaiah 66, it says, For all these things my hand is made, talking about the heavens and the earth. But through Isaiah, God says, But on this one or this person will I look, on him or her who is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. The word poor means humble. A humble, teachable person. God says it. I want to do it. I'm not going to argue with it. A person that's poor, they're humble, they're teachable. All the hot air is gone. I've used this example of a balloon. You pop, you pop a balloon with a pin, and the hot air goes, and you got this little flat piece of rubber there. All the vanity is gone. All the hot air is gone. A person like that is poor. They're humble. They're teachable. They don't have all kinds of their own opinions that they want to spill all over the place. And of a contrite spirit, they're repentant. God, show me what I need to change. Help me see what I need to do. We want to see more unity in the church. God, help us to see what we need to do so that we can promote that unity and not disrupt that unity. And he who trembles at my word, they read it, they don't argue with it, they want to understand it and do it. That's what God is looking for in all of us. As we go through this fast, if we can consider the examples that are recorded for us and ask the question, how does this apply to me? How does this apply to us as a church? How can we be more effective instruments in God's hand if he molds and fashions us? Jot these scriptures down, Hosea 6, 6, where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. How would God want us to handle these situations? Knowledge of God. And how can we show mercy as opposed to sitting around in judgment of people? You know, we've all told these stories, you know, of people that have wanted to come back to church. I saw this 20-some years ago. Fellow drove into the parking lot, got out of the parking lot, and the guy that was parking cars said, What are you doing here? What are you doing here? He'd been invited back by the minister. He looked at the guy and says, You know, I don't know. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. Got in his car and left. That's not mercy. But we're upholding standards. You gotta know. Well, <laughs> you gotta give people a chance to repent and change and grow. God desires mercy and knowledge of God, how God would handle the situation. Micah 6, 8. Again, what does God require is the question. 
And the answer is to do justly, to treat people properly with love and understanding and gentleness. Now, there's a time when you have to make decisions. You know, I had to make one not too long ago where ask a person to kind of back off on what they were saying and doing in a public way. And I did it pointed enough that the point would be perceived. <laughs> but I tried to do it also gentle enough that the person wouldn't get offended of it and by it. And the person responded. But we need to be merciful. But policy is policy. Well, policies need to be adjusted from time to time with love and understanding. It used to frustrate me to no end. One guy that I used to work with, he said, well, policy is policy. And there was never any gray areas. It always had to happen that way because that was the easy way to administer things. That's policy. Get them out of here. No, there's a human side of policy that needs to be understood and applied. And Mr. Armstrong understood that. Dr. Meredith understands that. And we all need to come to understand these things. Policies, there is a guide. But there's always exceptions sometimes to rules. But, you know, everybody's an exception. <laughs> That's the way our human nature works. Well, I, I'm different. I'm different. In any case, no, they're not different. They're looking for an excuse. But we've got to have the wisdom to understand the difference. God requires that we treat people justly, that we love mercy. We're not talking about Casper milk toasts here. Oh, I just, I'm so merciful. I just, no. We need to be merciful in a right way. And the other thing God requires is that we walk humbly with our God. We were willing to be taught by the scriptures. David said, you teach me, help me understand these scriptures. Help me understand these things. What's interesting is the prophets weren't pulling these things out of the air. These three scriptures are based on the, Mos on the writings of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, this almost sounds like New Testament teachings. But it was what God gave the, the nation of ancient Israel. And as we'll see, God is very consistent through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Beginning in verse 12, Deuteronomy 10, notice the question, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? What is God looking for in ancient Israel and in us today? But to fear the Lord your God. Now, you're not cringing in a corner, but you fear God. You want to obey God. To walk in all his ways and to love him. To love him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Moses was teaching the ancient Israelites. And God was telling Moses, here's what I want you to teach them. To keep my commandments, to love me, to fear me, to walk in my ways. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love me with all your heart and then to love your neighbor. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And then John wrote later in 1 John that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're there for your benefit. 
They're to keep you on a path. They're to show you the way. And if we think about this in the context of the fast today, what is the way to greater unity? What is the way of showing God that we care about his people? As we fast today, hopefully we're doing this to get right with God, to get right with God, to get a right perspective, a godly perspective on how God wants to teach us and lead us and use us. And if we humble ourselves before God, he's going to be able to teach us. He's going to be able to use us as powerful instruments in his hand if we let him work with us. You know, David humbled himself with prayer and fasting. David is called a man after God's own heart. And he's going to lead and reign over the 12 tribes of Israel in the coming kingdom of God. And God is going to use those 12 tribes to be a light and an example to the world and to assist Jesus Christ as he reorients the entire world to God's way. What I'd like to do next is to just notice some of the reasons and the attitudes of individuals who fasted in the Scriptures. Now, these are there for our admonition, for our instruction. I'm not going to go through a lot of these, but just to mention a couple. In Ezekiel, excuse me, in Exodus 34:28, Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights as he was receiving the Ten Commandments. And the implication was, or is, that he was humbling himself before God. He wanted to be teachable. He wanted to be teachable so that God could work with him. In Matthew 4, verse 2, Jesus fasted 40 days to prepare for facing the temptations from Satan. He knew he needed to be spiritually strong. He needed to be close to God. So he fasted to prepare for that. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, before he had this vision and encountered Peter, he was fasting. He said, while I was fasting, I had this vision. He was fasting for guidance, for direction. God, show me where I need to go. And God showed him, gave him a vision. He says, go knock on this door. He goes, knocks on the door. Peter's servant answers the door. God was working out something there. In Acts 13, the church was fasting for guidance in the selection of ministers to preach the gospel, and God gave them that guidance. So these are things we're familiar with, but I want you to turn back and notice an attitude in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9 and 10 give us an insight into attitudes and perspectives of individuals that God has used very powerfully. But we see into their hearts, we see into their minds, we see what they were doing. And we can do the same thing as we learn from these uh, instructions that we find here. In verse 1 of chapter 9 of Daniel, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the lineage of the Medes, uh, in the first year of his reign, verse 2, Daniel understood by the books the number of years, specifically by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in desolations. In other words, Daniel was studying the the writings of Jeremiah. He said, I understand from these writings that God is going to deliver his people in 70 years. So Daniel was trying to ask God, show me, God, how are you going to do this? Now, was this just for his own intellectual vanity? The implication of Scripture is no. 
that he was concerned about his people. Then I set my face to the Lord to make a request by prayer, verse 3, and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So he was asking God, but notice in preparing to make this request, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. He did not say, those rotten Israelites sinned. They got what they deserved. But I am here praying to you. He didn't say that. He said, God, we have sinned. We have sinned. We have come short of obeying you. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Verse 8, skipping down through here. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. We deserve what has happened to us. We've spent almost 70 years in captivity because we as a nation turned against you. As a nation today, we are turning away from God. This nation was founded on biblical principles by men who believed in God. Now, they may not have understood the whole truth, but they were trying to do what was right in their minds. And yet they're being told today that, uh, you know, we've got to have gays in the military because they love their country too, and they deserve to be able to fight for their country. But God said this stuff is an abomination. The leaders should know better. But our country is going in that direction. We're spending ourselves probably into oblivion. As one person mentioned critiquing the president's address the other night, he said, haven't we or can't we learn from what happened in Greece and in Ireland and in Italy and in Spain? Can't we make a change before we wind up in the same boat there's a lot of frustrated people in America noting what's happening, seeing what's happening, and they're very frustrated. Do we care enough about the people in our country that see the direction our country's going? Daniel did, as we'll see somebody else did too. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Verse 18, he says, Oh, my God, incline your your ear and hear. Open your eyes. See our desolations. Verse 19. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Please intervene on behalf of your people. Daniel wasn't praying for himself. He was praying for his people. Do we have that same kind of compassion and concern? You know, we might say, well, we're praying that you know, God will help other people, other people <laughs> understand what they need to understand. We might want to ask God, help us to understand what we need to understand. Help us to see what we need to see so that we can be better lights, better examples, more effective instruments in God's hands. In verse 21, Daniel is told... Uh, 
That's verse 22. This angel informed me, O Daniel, I have now come to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. God noticed an attitude. God noticed an attitude of care and of compassion and of concern. It wasn't selfishness. It was concern for God's people. And God noticed that and gave Daniel understanding. Chapter 10, we won't spend much time there, but again, Daniel was praying and fasting. He wanted to know what the future of God's people was going to be. They get out of this captivity, then what? What's going to happen? Where are they going to go? What's coming down the road for them? What I really want to focus on is turn back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Nehemiah was one of the individuals who led some of the captives back to Jerusalem after the captivity. But I want you to notice something about Nehemiah that I think would be very instructive for us today. Nehemiah chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 1, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Shislev, in the 20th year, I was in Sushan, or Susa, the capital, one of the capitals of the Persian Empire, and that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So he was concerned about his brethren back in Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors are left, who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and uh, reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and his gates are burned with fire. In other words, they're, they're living in hovels back there. It's a mess. Now put this in context, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king of Persia. He was living probably a pretty good life. He could take a bath, he had food. He had probably a very sumptuous place to live. He could have said, those poor wretches back there, you know, they should listen to God. But that was not his approach. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven for these people who didn't have it as good as he did. And you can get down and read through the prayer. It's very similar to the prayer that Daniel made. Verse 6, it says, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned. He didn't say them. He said we. We have changes to make. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept your commandments or statutes nor the, uh, the ordinances. But then he says, God, remember, verse 8, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember you said, 
If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, then I'm going to gather you. I'm going to bring you back. Verse 10, now these are your servants, God, and your people. Now we can be praying too, God, these are your people. You know, 20 years ago, we had 150,000 people, 140 or 50,000 people at the feast. Where are they today? God, they're your people. They're off in all kinds of directions, following different people, doing different things. They're scattered all over the place. God, these are your people. As opposed to those poor, wretched people, they don't understand where the truth is. God, these are your people. Look what has happened to your people. Verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants, servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy. In other words, grant me mercy in the sight of this king, that he'll let me do something, that he'll let me go back. His focus wasn't on staying in this big castle or palace and riding around in uh, Lexus chariots. <laughs> now, his focus was on the state of God's people, and he cared for God's people. He acknowledges we've all sinned. Please hear my prayer. And one of the lessons I hope that we can take home today is we're fasting to show concern, not to other people, but to God. God, we care about your people. We care about the people that are out there that don't understand, that are lost, that are frustrated. That are, you think about what you went through, for those of you that have been around for 15, 20 years. When the church came apart, how did you feel? I remember listening to one guy give a speech and he said, you know, I was just a happy camper until a week or two ago. And I thought, you're lying. You couldn't have been a happy camper. Because I know in my situation, I wasn't able to sleep for months when I saw things happening. How did you feel when the church came apart? Families went different directions. Friends went different directions. What went through your mind? Was it easy? Oh, no big deal. No, chances are you're probably shaken up. There are people today shaken up. People still shook up over things that have happened. Ezra, or excuse me, Nehemiah was concerned. As churches divide, congregations divide, it's easy to say, well, they happen to them because. But I would encourage all of us to look inwardly. Have we played a role in any of these things? Are there things that we have done that perhaps have alienated people, sent them off in a di different direction? You know, I shared a story with you some time ago that when I first came into the ministry, right before Passover, actually it was at Passover one evening, a guy walked into the door with a, a towel and a little basin. He was going to keep the Passover. And I saw him come into the hallway, and I went up to him. I said, what are you doing here? He hadn't been attending for months. He said, well, I came to keep the Passover. 
I said, well, you should have checked with us before you came. He turned around and left. I didn't think that much about it at the time. But a couple years ago, I heard he was back attending with us. And I sent him an email. I said, I'm sorry for what I did and said to you 15 years ago. I think he said, I don't remember what you said. (laughs) He may have remembered and didn't want to (laughs) indicate that he had, but he's back attending with us. But I apologized to him. I said, "That that was not a wise decision on my part. You know, there are people today that are hurting. People who've seen things they shouldn't see in the church of God. And we need to be looking internally as we go through this fast. Are there things that we might have said, that we might have done, that have given people a reason for not following you know, the church of God today? We need to think about these things. I can't change you. You can't change me. We've got to let God work with us to mold and fashion us into instruments that he can use. You know, when my wife and I came back or came with the Global Church of God years ago, first feast we went into, we ran into a person that I know. And he said, what took you guys so long? I said, we're slow. But, you know, that's, that's not the greeting that we look for. If somebody came, when they come up and say, you know, like my grandkids, whenever we go into the house, Grandpa, 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 they come up and attack us. <laughs> but they want to show they're joyful. They're, they're joyful that we're, we're there as opposed to, why are you here, Grandpa? <laughs> I mean, put yourself in, in the position of some of these people. Some people have long memories that they don't want to let go. They prefer, they're comfortable with these long memories. We've had ministers and we've had members leave the church for various reasons, go different places. In a number of interesting cases, they've decided to come back. And in most situations, they have been welcomed back. But in a number of situations, there have been one or two or three people that uh, I remember what he said a long time ago. I know what they did. It's kind of like the brother of the prodigal son. And the son goes off, wastes his money. He comes back. His dad's overjoyed. And he throws this big banquet. And his brother's off in the corner. Dad never did that for me. Never did that for me. And look, I've been righteous the whole time. It's hard to do some of those things. The lady that was caught in adultery, brought to Christ. Look who we have here. There's the evidence. What are you going to do? He started writing in the sand. And probably people recognized some names. 
recognized some dates, recognized some places, and the accusers began to file out. And Christ looks up, looks at the lady, where are your accusers? Said, They're gone. He says, I don't accuse you either, but just go and sin no more. That was the end of the story. There was love, there was mercy, there was forgiveness, there was patience, and not somebody there, here, this is a guilty one, do something. But sometimes we can be that way. Again, for the most part, people in church are not that way, but all we need is one or two. And that creates an image, sends a message. See, if we can look at ourselves as we go through this fast, God, show me what I need to change. And I think, too, brethren, if we can think beyond just our our church community and think about what's happening in the world, this unrest in the Arab world, again, it's being fanned by individuals that want to get into positions of power. But when you look at the thousands of people that are demonstrating in Egypt, They're tired of poverty. They're tired of police brutality. They're tired of being held down. And this thing is going to blow. Do we care about the state of those people? Do we care about the state of our country where we see where we're going today? And it's not going to be fun and games. Maybe another year or two or three. We don't know what the dates are going to be. People are not going to want to know what to do with million-dollar houses. And if there's no gas in the gas pump, your Lexus won't run. Neither will your little Ford whatever. (laughs) It's just not going to work. We're going to be in a different world. You know, Nehemiah was concerned about his people. Jesus Christ was concerned about his people. Turn to Matthew chapter 23, where Christ had just upbraided the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, called them whitened sepulchers. He says, woe to you guys. Close up the kingdom of God against my people. You know, some... Times in the church, we, people come back from being away from a number of years. And, you know, it's good to see you back, but your skirt's too short. We're glad to have you here, but your hair's too long. And that earring in your nose has got to come out. And you probably have one in your belly button, too. <laughs> you know, and I'm not making these things up, brethren. These things happen from time to time. I've told you the story of the young man that was graduating from university where we were living. His parents were in the church. He was raised in the church. He went to college, got away from things. He asked for a visit just about the time he was graduating. He said, I'd like to come back to church. And I was in his apartment. He was sharing with a couple of other guys, and I didn't want to look at the posters that were on the wall. And he had hair that came down to his back. And I said, look, you want to come back? You know what? We encourage how we encourage people to dress at church. I said, you, you might want to think about getting a haircut. And that was all I said, is we'd be glad to see you. He walked in, he'd gotten a haircut, he came only down to here. And he wasn't in the door, but two or three seconds, and there were two deacons on his tail. 
And they came right up to me. Who let that guy in here? What's he doing here? Look at the way he's dressed. And I said, fellas, give him a break. He got a haircut. <laughs> That's a start. Now give him another couple weeks. And they went back to their duties. See, these things can happen. Again, it wasn't everybody in church, but there were a couple guys. And I don't know whether the fellow stayed with us or not. But, you know, one onion can spoil the whole broth, or whatever it is that spoils the whole broth. <laughs> but where was the compassion? Where was the understanding? Which needs to be there. And I'm leading to a point I want to show you in just a minute. But in Matthew 23, after upbraiding the Pharisees, notice what Jesus said. In verse, uh, let me get the right chapter here. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often that I wanted to gather your, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I wanted to do these things for you. I wanted to comfort you. I wanted to show you the truth. But you're not willing. You didn't want to listen. You didn't pay any attention. But Jesus was a very compassionate person. You can see him saying that Jerusalem, Jerusalem, America, America. Why are you doing this to yourself? Turn back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Talking about the ministry of Jesus Christ. When Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, you might ask, what was he teaching? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, healing every sickness and every disease among them. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved by compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Look this verse up in a couple of different translations. They were weary. They were harassed. They were harassed. And we got people on the Internet today harassing people. Now, making wild accusations, trying to undermine their faith. And scattered. The word here also means distressed, helpless, downcast, frustrated, disillusioned. As sheep having no shepherds. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful. But the laborers are few. Please pray to the Lord of the harvest that he sends out laborers for the harvest. If you go back and read Jeremiah 23, I would encourage you to do that maybe this afternoon. The whole chapter is talking about evil shepherds who scatter my flock, who drive them away. And this has happened in Church of God where the flocks have been scattered and they've been driven away because they realize this is not right. It shouldn't be happening this way. This can't be God's church. I'm out of here. And where do they go? They go all over the place. Some went back to the Jewish uh, uh, groups. Some went to Seventh-day Adventists because they keep the Sabbath. Others quit, stopped, and others are looking for other things. 
But read through that chapter. God says, I am going to set up shepherds for my sheep. I'm going to feed my flock. I'm going to appoint over them people who care about them. Now, if we can put this in a bigger context, he's going to do that with his church, but we are going to do this with the world one of these days. To be shepherds for the world that care about people. Ezekiel 34, the same thing. Please read it. Talks about shepherds who feed themselves. They like the good life. Driving around in big cars and you know, eating in expensive restaurants and doing this and doing that. We've got to be very careful with these things, brethren. The example that we set. I talked with some people in another country one time. Had noticed the lifestyle of the minister that they had there. He said he lives like a king. We don't. We can't afford to do that. And it was sobering to listen to what they had to say. But God says here in Ezekiel 34, they've not sought for the lost sheep. They've not gone looking for the people that scattered into the winds. We might want to ask ourselves, what can we do to reach out? What can we do to create an environment that's, that's accepting and loving and caring? And please don't write this off as just a bunch of silly, sentimental stuff. Because people will sense if you're sincere. Oh, it's so good to see you. Ah, look at her. Can't do that. Or look at him. Or whatever. People will sense if you're sincere. I had a talk with a couple of guys not too long ago who I'd worked with. <clears throat> They're in another organization. And they were wondering, you know, is it possible to get together? Is it possible to do this or that? And I said, well, why can't we? Well, then they listed a bunch of, of, of reasons. And then I countered some of those reasons. And as we were talking, I said, you know, we have had good times together. We've worked together. And I started to choke up. <laughs> said, I'm sorry, but, you know, when you talk about these things, memories come back. It's hard. And one of the guys said, Doug, you put a different face on your organization when you come across this way. And what I'd like us all to think about, brethren, is that we represent a face of the organization to those people we come in contact with. And they will draw conclusions about the organization by their relationship with you. You know, if we're caring, if we're understanding, if we're patient, <clears throat> but we also have standards that we stick to without sticking them in people's face. God will be able to use us. But these are things to think about, brethren. God is going to use people. He said, I'm, I'm going to seek out my flock. And I'm going to feed my flock. And I'm going to set ministers over them that will help them, encourage them. 
and work with them. Turn back to Isaiah 40. How is God going to work with people in the coming kingdom of God? And I think this is how God wants us to work with people today. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Now, in years past, we've focused on one of these verses. I'd like to focus on all of the verses today here. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 40, beginning in verse 10, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and he shall rule, and his arm shall rule for him. He talks about later he's going to rule with a rod of iron. I can remember hearing comments in the past, Christ is going to come back and bash some people over the head <laughs> with that rod. He's going to straighten them out. He's going to show them what for. But let's read the rest of the verse. Behold, his reward is with him. He's going to give those and share that reward with the saints and his work before him. And he will feed his flock like a shepherd. I have yet to see a shepherd walking around with a bar of an iron bar beating the sheep over the head. Doesn't work that way. He's got a staff to keep the wolves away that you have to use from time to time. Dr. Maris got a cane. Be careful. (laughs) (laughs) But shepherds don't walk around with a lead pipe. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. You don't pick up a lamb and start yelling at the little thing. They're very helpless. And gently lead those who are with young. Gently lead them. Gently lead them. And we heard in the sermonette about these scriptures in Colossians 3, about is the elect of God be tender and forgiving, not policemen, not policemen. Second Timothy, Second <clears throat> Timothy two. <clears throat> Again, Paul repeats himself, writing to different audiences. But these are guidelines, and if we can focus on these things as we go through the fast, you know, how can I change so God can use me more effectively? How can we grow as a church so God can use us more effectively? 2 Timothy 2. In verse 15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we should be able to explain the Scriptures. But notice how God wants us to explain these things. Down in verse 24. But the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You know, if we can develop these qualities of gentleness, of patience, if we can develop the primary quality that God wants us to develop as we strive to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. You know, we talk a lot today about being a Philadelphia church. But the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. It means brotherly love. 
I think people understand that we're preaching the truth of God. But, you know, they need to see something in us, not just hear from us. They need to sense something that's there. Because if they hear that, well, we're the right church, and we're the true church, and we have the truth, and so on, you know, they can't argue with that whenever you really pin it down. But that doesn't win friends and influence people. But when they sense that we care about them as individuals, there's going to be a different response. Now, in John 13, Jesus went over this with his disciples the night before he was crucified. In verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you should also love one another by this, by this love that you have for other people. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, we can have the truth, but if we don't have love, if we can't work with people in a way that is encouraging and uplifting, read 1 Corinthians 13, first couple of verses. You can understand all kinds of prophecy and understand all these other things. But if you don't have love and compassion and understanding, you're nothing. I didn't say that. Paul did. <laughs> so we need to understand these things. God has given us an understanding of a number of things, brethren, to be able to preach the gospel, to be able to reach a people who've been blessed by God who don't know who they are. And they don't know why they've been blessed. Other than, well, yeah, God gave us these blessings. But God gave us these blessings because of promises he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's kept his part of the bargain. As a nation, we've not kept ours. We've turned our back on God. We need to think about some of these things, brethren. People ask today, why is the church divided? If, if this was God's church, it wouldn't be divided. Go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is saying there, I'm pleading with you, brethren. He didn't say, oh, you're all one to get together, so everything's fine. He said, I'm pleading with you, brethren, that you all speak the same thing, that you not be divided. He was writing to people who were divided. He says, there's contentions among you. What does Proverbs say about the cause of contention? Pride is the cause of contention. And we need to overcome those things. If we want to have one church that's united, we've got to unite it and do the things that God wants us to do. Of showing love and showing concern to other people. We've got to do it God's way. We've got to be led by the same spirit. We've got to be led by the same spirit. You know, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 11, he says... People will come with a different gospel, preaching about a different Jesus and being led by a different spirit. This is one of the reasons there's so many divisions. I'd encourage you, brethren, as we come to the conclusion of the sermon, please go back and read Isaiah 58. These are instructions for fasting. Let's go back there quickly and just notice a couple things. 
See, God doesn't leave us out on a limb. Well, I'm going to fast because, you know, I want to get this or want to get that. You know, I was asking a person recently, I said, how do you know God led you in doing a certain thing? Well, I prayed and fasted. Well, we can pray and fast for a lot of things. But God says here, is this the fast that I have chosen? You fast for strife. You want things your way, verse 4. Is this the fast that I've chosen? Verse 6, he says, is this not the fast that I've chosen? Now notice these things. It's a big view. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to break the bonds that Satan has put around people, to keep them blinded, to undo heavy burdens, to lift the burdens off of people. Some people are being told today, if you're going to be in God's church, you can't talk to your parents if they're not in God's church. You can't do that. That's a burden. That's satanic. Yet people are being told that, and they think, I've got to do that or else I'm going to, I'm going to be a layer to see in. It's ridiculous. That's not the fast that God has chosen. He says, I've chosen the fast that we lift the heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free. How would you like to go into Egypt and have the power to change things there? So you don't have to demonstrate in the streets, tomorrow we're going to have a different government here. How would you like to start changing things in America and putting it back on track for a change instead of watching it go down the tubes? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? You've got a million people down in Haiti that need help. Their government can't provide it. We can't provide it all. But how would you like to change some of these things? It says, God will hear your prayer. Notice in verse 9, latter part of it, if you take away the yoke from your midst, you don't oppress your own people. And you take away pointing the finger, ah, you don't do those things. And you stop speaking wickedness or malicious talking. So you've got to stop those things. God will hear your prayer if you extend your soul to the hungry. If you're concerned, you're praying about these things. Down in verse 13, if you take your foot off the Sabbath and you start doing things God's way, then I'll hear your prayers. And the final scripture I want to mention here is over in chapter 61 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 1. This is what Christ is going to do when he comes back. This is what Jesus told his disciples to do. Verse 1, The Spirit of of God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me or anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. The good news of the coming kingdom of God, that peace and joy is going to break out one of these days. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. And there are a lot of people with broken hearts today. You know, Mr. Tyler told the story of a fellow out in the Pacific. He saw what was happening in a church years ago. He got down on his knees and prayed by the ocean. He said, God, where did your church go? Show me where your church is today. And a day or two later, one of our magazines arrived at his post office box. Now, this sounds weird. But he prayed, he entreated God, and God showed him where it was. to proclaim liberty to the captives. And Satan is holding this world captive today. 
Revelation 12, 9 says he's deceived the whole world. He's not, he's not talking about just the Muslims. He's talking about the whole world. See if you can read through Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61 and see if you don't come away with a different perspective. It's a lot bigger. It's a perspective of compassion, a perspective of understanding of God's way of life and of God's plan and purpose. In Joel 1, 14 and 15, you might want to look at that a little bit later, but it says, Proclaim a fast, because the day of the Lord is coming. Proclaim a fast, because the day of the Lord is coming, and you better get close to God, because it's not going to be easy. Brethren, Dr. Meredith asked us to fast today. The Bible instructs us about fasting. Jesus Christ talked to his disciples as when you fast, wash your hair, take a shower, brush your teeth. Don't put a big show up about doing it. It's what's going on between your ears, not what's going on in your stomach that's important. It's the attitude. God wants to see a compassionate attitude. He wants to be able to use us to work with people coming back out of captivity and say, look, this is the way. Walk you in it. To comfort them, to help them, encourage them, and not be walking behind them. I know why you went into captivity. I know, I know. <laughs> Can't be that way. We've got to have a big view, a compassionate view, an understanding view, that kind of a perspective. Brethren, if we can humble ourselves before God, say, God, show me, work with me, mold me, fashion me, work with us as a church, help us, Father, to grow so that we can be instruments in your hands. God's going to be able to use us to turn the world upside down, just as he did the early apostles, if we get the attitude right, as we fast out of concern for God's people. Let's ask God earnestly, and let's do as Daniel did and Nehemiah did. God, we need to change. Forgive us. Help us so that we can help your people. Enjoy the rest of your fast. <laughs>